Proverbs chapter 11 and uh, in verse 16 where it points out that um, a gracious woman retaineth honor and strong men retain riches. Now, just so that you are familiar with where we are in this uh, particular text, let me remind you that the woman gets the better part of the deal. That is, the woman uh, in her weakness, and um, women, of course, were more or less despised in this particular age in which he's writing. For a woman to attain honor was difficult, even though uh, there was a certain theoretical honor that came to her because of her husband. Uh, yet a woman who uh, achieved what the, the woman in the book of uh, Proverbs chapter 31 achieved uh, was really an unusual sort of a situation, at least thought so by uh, the male-dominant society in which she lived. And so for a woman to get to the place of honor was, was something that was far beyond the value of riches and the value of wealth. And uh, a strong man... Uh, or, as we'll see in a moment again, a violent man, a man who, is, who is, uh, uh, takes things by force, he can attain riches, but he can never attain what the gracious woman can attain. So we have set here an antithetical dishtick. We have a contrast that is set together so that you'll understand that even though the, the woman may be weaker than the man, uh, even though she may not have the social prestige that the man might automatically have, she, by being gracious, can attain what the man can never attain, even though he's powerful. That's the principle that's being taught in this particular verse. So we discussed the gracious woman, and we began to discuss a little bit about this strong man. The word strong is eretz. It's used 23 times. Once it's used in reference to God, but generally it speaks of one who is an oppressor, one who is violent, one who is terrible, speaks of persons as being oppressors, speaks of nations as being terrible, particularly in Isaiah, uh, where, where time after time it speaks of the terrible nations, the oppressive nations, the violent nations. Four different times in the book of Ezekiel, uh, you have the, the phrase, uh, Eretz, say, go... Goim, the nation, the the terrible or the ruthlessness, the ruthlessness of the nations. Ezekiel liked the phraseology, uh, the the idea of the oppressing nations, the ruthless nations. It was used in reference to the power and the strength, usually of the wicked. For instance, in Psalm 37, 35, where the psalmist is crying out to the Lord and, <clears throat> and talking about how oppressive uh, the, his enemies are and so on. Well, these individuals retain or sustain or maintain riches and wealth. And here's the word, Osher. Osher means uh, to accumulate to uh, accumulate usually wealth or riches. It's an accumulation, so they retain their accumulation. Uh, there are many, many wicked men who die rich. Notice, they die, but they die rich. And uh, not that their riches do them any good when they're dead, 
But uh, they do. They are able to retain riches. But remember now that when a man attains riches and gets to the place where he's saturated with riches, he's got more money than he could ever possibly spend. He's never satisfied with that. He has to gain more riches and, in addition, power and honor. The man, that's why a lot of, as we said earlier, that's why a lot of rich men run for political office. They aren't going to get richer necessarily in their political office than they could if they stayed in the outside world. That's just a known fact. If a man is a manager uh, of a large corporation, uh, leaving that and going into politics is not probably going to gain him more money, but it gains him honor. And men seek after, search after honor. That's really the top of the heap, folks, when people look at you and say, you are great. Remember, it's the gracious woman. And, by the way, can be the gracious man. Even the gracious, uh, a lowly man who will attain honor. People will look well upon them. And they'll say, hey, he's all right. He's, he's somebody you can trust. He's, he's somebody that's honorable. That's the top of the heap. And men that are wealthy sit and brood many times about the fact that they can't attain the thing they really want. Because the thing they really want is to have people tell, say how great, how great they are and mean it. You see? Oh, people will say it. They'll flatter the rich. And uh, the rich, if they have any brains at all, won't believe a word they're saying. Because they know good and well. They're oppressive. They're violent. They're cruel. They, they clod over all kinds of bodies getting to the top. When they get to the top, then they realize the limitation of their own riches. Now, we've got to come back to this in a moment. But I want to go down a little rabbit trail here for a moment. Remember this. That riches in and of themselves are not bad. Scripture presents both a positive and negative aspect to riches. Riches do have value. But the value of riches is limited. Now let me just give you some principles. And we'll look at some scriptures and try to get this, this in mind. Some very, very important principles on the matter of riches. Riches, first of all, can be the blessing of the Lord to the righteous. Psalm 112. Psalm 112. And verse 3. And verse 3. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Now, who is this? This is, in verse 1, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, and who delighteth greatly in his commandments. Again, whenever you're dealing with the Old Testament, there is a lot said about temporal, earthly wealth and riches. Because the emphasis is upon the people on the earth, and the blessing of God is primarily material. There is spiritual blessing, of course, and the eternal things are implied. But God gives great promises to these Old Testament saints concerning wealth and riches. Fascinating to come, over, come into the New Testament and find the emphasis changed to eternal wealth and riches. Lay not for yourself treasure upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But at the same time, God doesn't forget the same principles that he gave in the Old Testament. Christ told his disciples, if you give up houses and lands and all of those things for me, then uh, I will in this life give you 
prosperity and so on. So there is a degree to which this is true. The, the, the thing we have to keep in mind though in the New Testament is God does not automatically give a righteous man wealth. But what he does is uh, portion out the wealth in accordance with who he can trust and in accordance with how, uh, uh, what kind of a steward a man is and all of those kind of things. Those are involved. Don't be surprised if you're righteous and not rich in this life. Remember, there's far more to life than merely the accumulation of wealth and riches. And the, uh, some of you are going to be very, very rich in glory. And guess what? That's where the real action is because that's forever. So you don't have to, don't have to worry. But at the same time, don't think that it is necessarily spiritual to be poor either. God wants you to be honest. He wants you to be honorable. He wants you to be merciful. He wants you to be generous. He wants you to be all of those things. But he wants you to recognize that um, he many times will give financial prosperity to the man who really puts him first. But it's not guaranteed in the same sense that we see in the, in the Old Testament. So blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delighteth greatly in his commandments. And verse 3, wealth and riches shall be in his house. God gives him that promise. Now also in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 22, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich and addeth no sorrow with it. God gives a great promise. Again, the men, the men in the world, the ruthless man, the oppressive man, he can gain riches, but with the riches is added the sorrow. On the other hand, the man who receives his riches from God, that man can have riches with no sorrow. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. This tremendous text as the blessing of the Lord is given forth by Hannah. She's crying out to the Lord and she makes it very clear that she understands God and his purposes with men. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the refuse to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them and so on. God's blessing to the, to the one who follows him. Chapter 3, verse 16. Again, wisdom is the subject. The tenfold value of, of wisdom um, it says in verse 13, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, kokmah, the skill of living life from God's point of view, and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, better to have wisdom than money, and the gain thereof than fine gold. Far better to have understanding than to have a lot of wealth and riches. But notice, riches are more precious than rubies. And all the things that thou canst desire not to be compared to her. Let's get our priorities straight. That's the best thing to have, all right? But then notice, with it is a byproduct. Length of days is in her right hand. And in her left hand, notice, riches and honor. Both. Because the gracious person, the wise person, the understanding person is one who is, is gripped with, with a sense of priority. And then the byproduct are the very thing that the rich men really want. Honor. But as well, riches as a byproduct. So the first thing is, riches can be the blessing of the Lord to the righteous. 
Second thing is this. Riches can be the reward of the humble person, of a humble faith, of a humble trust in God. Look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 4. By humility... Now, let's talk about humility again. We'll talk about it a thousand more times before we ever get through Proverbs. But let's talk about it. It's very vital. In Scripture, you have two contrasting things. Pride and humility. Now, you can look up, as I did, every verse in Scripture that it deals with pride... And every verse that deals with humility, and there are several words that are used, but there is, a, there is a common denominator in all of them. There are shades of meaning involved, but the common denominator is this. Pride always implies independence. Humility always implies dependence. We use the word pride today in a, in a different way. For instance, I can say to you, I am proud of my son. Now by that, I'm, I'm pleased with something he has accomplished, alright? And of course, people that misunderstand pride would be judgmental of a statement like that, and they would say, oh, preachers aren't supposed to be proud. I think I told you one time about a woman my mother was counseling and um, she called up on a Sunday afternoon. Is your mother there? And I, I was 10 years old at the time. And I said, no, she's not there. Or she's not here. She's at the church. My sister, who was 13 at the time, is playing the organ tonight. And mom is so proud. Well, I, I was innocent enough when I said that. But this woman, it absolutely devastated her. To think that Mrs. Steele could be proud was absolutely the end. And she would, after that time, not listen to a word my mother said in terms of counsel because she was proud. Well, now, she misunderstood pride. There's nothing wrong with being pleased or having a sense of pleasure from the accomplishment of someone that you're related to or someone that you, you like. I'll tell you, there, I see my staff, uh, uh, some of the things that they're doing in terms of ministry, and I'll tell you, I'm proud of them. Really proud of them. I'm not ashamed to say that at all. That's a perfectly legitimate word in English. But the, the idea of pride in the Old Testament and New Testament is something entirely different. It is independent. Satan was the epitome of pride when he says, I can go it alone. Who needs God? All right? And humility is just the opposite. It is dependence. It's, it, humility toward God is saying, God, I need you. I can't make it on my own. And, of course, there are degrees of both. And God says that we are to be careful that we don't develop a proud attitude, but that we continue in a dependence upon God. Christ reinforced that when he said, Without me, you can do how much? Nothing. All right? I'll tell you. That's humbling, isn't it? To realize we can do nothing at all that pleases God except through him. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me but there was no attitude of independence Paul speaks of his own pride as being a dependence upon God an independence from God and before he was a Christian that's what he was an independent man and of course 
At the same time, you have in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul declaring that he was given a thorn in the flesh to make him dependent. Go ahead and look at the text. It says that it says that God allowed a messenger of Satan to buffet him lest he be exalted above measure. And Paul is saying, Lord, I can be more effective if you take this thorn away. And the Lord, in essence, says, Paul, I know you can be more effective. But I can be more effective if you're weak. And Paul says, ah, I've got it now. Here is humility. When I am weak, he is strong. That makes me strong in his strength. That makes me dependent upon him. And therefore, I have nothing to boast of. I can't boast of what I've done. I can only boast in the Lord because He has accomplished these things through me. That is humility, right? And Scripture says that God resists the proud, but He gives what? To the humble. Grace. What is grace? That grace is God's favor. And when you say, Lord, I need you. I can't make it alone. I don't have any self-sufficiency. Then God says, all right, now I'll give you grace. And it's grace that ultimately will bring you to a place of real victory. Now, having said all that, look at this word again. By humility and the fear of the Lord. What a combination. Depending upon the Lord and, and standing in awe of His presence and His power. What is the fear of the Lord? Again, remember there are two factors in fear. You see a policeman and you're driving 65 when you should be driving 55 and you see that policeman, you immediately have a response of fear. You see a policeman, and you fear. Why? Because there are two things about that policeman. First of all, he's present. If he wasn't present, you wouldn't fear, right? Five minutes before when you didn't see him, or if he's hiding behind a billboard, <laughs> you're not afraid of him, all right? You don't see him, you're not afraid of him. But it's not only the fact that he's present, but the fact that he has the power to do something about it. You see, you know, have you ever done this? You ever see a, a drive down the road? I'll show, show you, you know, this is confession is good for the soul. As you're driving down the road and you're speeding a little bit. And uh, you're making the excuse that all these other cars are speeding. All of a sudden you see his car up ahead with a light on top. And you, swoosh, you know, back off just a little bit. And, and then you go by and it's a highway car, just, uh, you know, a Caltran or some other kind of car that's got a light on top, and you breathe that sigh of relief and step on the gas again. <laughs> you know, why? Because he doesn't have any power, alright? The fear of the Lord is recognizing God sees all you do, as the old spiritual says, he sees all you do, he hears all you say, my Lord's writing all the time. You recognize God is present, but you also recognize the awesome power of God, alright? So now you've got this combination of a dependence upon God in humility and at the same time a healthy fear of the Lord. The thing, interesting thing is that we are driving down the road 55 miles an hour. You see the police car, you glance at your speedometer and you're within the limit and you still have fear. The fear in the sense that you see his presence, you see his power and you make sure you're not going to speed as you're going by, right? But you don't have the same kind of fear. It's not a dread because you know you're within the limits of the law. And that's the kind of thing that you have with God. It's Fear of the Lord doesn't have to be a dreadful thing. It can be. It doesn't have to be. But if you know there's sin in your life and you're going your jolly way, 
then of course you're going to dread the Lord's presence and power. But if you're living righteously, you're not going to dread it, but you're still going to respect it, right? And so as a result, the fear of the Lord doesn't have to be a, a, a negative thing. It can be a very positive thing. It gives me great assurance as I'm walking down the street, in, in, say in Chicago, to see the policeman on his beat. That is presence, that is power, but it's also protection for me, you see. And so therefore, it gives you great assurance when a policeman's handy when you need him. You need directions or you want to escape from a mugger or something else, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so the power and presence of the Lord, it can be a very positive thing. But in, in this case, you've got this tremendous combination of humility and the fear of the Lord. And what's the byproduct? Riches and honor and life. What more could a person want? So riches can be the reward of humble trust in the Lord. Number three, riches can be the gain of wisdom. I already saw that in part. Let's look at another verse. Proverbs 14, verse 24. The crown of the wise is their riches. But the foolishness of fools is folly. The crown of the wise is their riches. Again, riches give as a byproduct the, the uh, excuse me, the wisdom gives as a byproduct riches. And there is a sense in which when a person has been wise and then attains wealth or riches as a result, it becomes like a, like a crown to his head. It's, it's, it's really an advertisement that this individual has been wise. And in fact, you can just about assume that um, if an individual is rich, he has either been wise or he's been oppressive. He's either been wise or he's been oppressive. And of course, there's a lot of rich people who like to think that they were wise when actually they were otherwise. And so you have to be careful of that. The fourth thing is this. Riches can be the reward of valor. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel 17 and verse 15. That can't be right. Got a wrong reference there. We'll have to skip that one. I don't like to have to do that. But I um, could be... Let me check one thing. Nope. All right, we'll have to come back to that. I'll see if I can look it up and fill it in. All right, number five. Riches can be the result of diligent labor. Okay? Riches can be the result of diligent labor. Without oppression, but diligent labor. Proverbs 10, verse 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand. That is the guy that just relaxes and says, oh, well, just see what happens. You know, take it cool, man. But the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Now, the, the idea is that the man with the slack hand is, has gotten lazy. And he thinks, oh, well, everything will be fine. Everything's gone fine up to now. It'll go fine. And he hasn't maintained vigilance and uh, diligence. And so, therefore... He has, uh, the man that is diligent is the man that 
maketh rich. And then in Proverbs 21 and verse 17, he that, here's again the, here's sort of a definition of the slack hand, all right? He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. <laughs> pleasure is a priority. It's going to make you poor. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. The wine, of course, in the matter of drinking, the, the oil uh, having to do uh, with, uh, with luxury, really. The man that just, you may have a lot of money, but if you live in ease and in luxury, eventually the, uh, the money can quickly slip away from you. Riches can be the proper adornment of kings. Uh, there's a very close relationship with uh, uh, particularly godly kings and the blessing of the Lord in wealth and riches. Let's look first of all at 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And verse 23. Solomon, of course, was wise. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth in riches and for wisdom. And all the earth consulted Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Probably one of the richest kings that ever lived. Second Chronicles chapter 9. Second Chronicles chapter 9. And verse 22. King Solomon passed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Second Chronicles 1 verse 11. God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor. Notice the combination again. You did not ask riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies. Neither hast thou asked long life, but hast asked for wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted unto thee. And I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have, have the like. Wealth and riches, because he sought after wisdom. Then in Second Chronicles, chapter 17. Second Chronicles, chapter 17, and verse 5. This is Jehoshaphat. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought, brought to Jehoshaphat tribute. And he had riches and honor in abundance. But then notice, And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and idols out of Judah. And so on. Here he was, a man who trusted God. And God blessed him richly. Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 27. 2 Chronicles 32, 27. Hezekiah. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. Again, notice that combination. And he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of costly articles. Storehouses also for the increase of grain and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats for flocks. 
Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much substance. Let me just say that Hezekiah, one of the great, great kings and the builder of the great tunnel that goes into the city of Jerusalem water supply to the pool of Siloam, a tremendous man with tremendous power and tremendous honor and tremendous wealth. And he was a humble man, a man who depended upon God. But one day, his heart was lifted up in pride. And what he, the way he evidenced that pride was the king of Babylon came around and uh, he says, by the way, king, let me show you what I've got. <laughs> and he took him around and he showed him all his treasuries. He went into all these storehouses. Look at this, look at this, look at this. And the king of Babylon went away saying, wow, what a king, instead of saying, what a great God. And the next thing that happened was that Babylon said, we've got to take that place. And the city of Jerusalem fell largely because of the advertisement of old King Hezekiah in his later years because he, he became proud of his wealth and riches which God had given him.